Next is Cover to Cover. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Open Book, Friday's edition of Cover to Cover. I'm Amelia Gonzalez. Today, we go back a few years and listen to a treasure that we have here at KPFA. We spend this half hour listening to one of Latin America's most acclaimed writers, Eduardo Galeano. His works, from the trilogy Memory of Fire to the classic Open Veins of Latin America, are a unique blend of history, fiction, journalism, and political analysis. His books have been translated into more than 20 languages. Born in Uruguay in 1940, Eduardo Galeano began writing newspaper articles as a teenager. Though his dream was to become a soccer player by the age of 20, he became editor-in-chief of La Marcha. A few years later, he took the top post at Montevideo's daily newspaper, Época. At 31, Galeano wrote his most famous book, The Open Veins of Latin America, Five Centuries of the Pillage of a Continent. After the 1973 military coup in Uruguay, Galeano was imprisoned and forced to leave the country. He settled in Argentina, where he founded and edited a cultural magazine, Crisis. After the 1976 military coup there, Galeano's name was added to the list of those condemned by the death squads. He moved to Spain, where he began his classic work, Memory of Fire, a three-volume narrative of the history of America, North and South. He eventually returned home to his native Uruguay, where he now resides. The following is part one of Eduardo Galeano's reading of his book, Mirrors, Stories of Almost Everyone, back in the summer of 2009 when the book was just published. In Pithy, he shares creation myths and reflections on history. He uses the past to comment on the present, where these vignettes embrace the exalted and the humble, and consistently privilege the narratives of the dispossessed. Stay with us as we visit with Eduardo Galeano. Let's begin with the name, Mirrors. The great Argentinian writer, Jorge Luis Borges, hated sex because sex multiplies people. And he, and he hated mirrors because mirrors multiply people. Uh, about about sex, uh, I, I don't yet have uh, an opinion. <laughs> but, but about mirrors, I can tell you that I love mirrors exactly for the same reason, because mirrors multiply people. And inside each mirror, there are crowds waiting to be seen. And this book is has been written 
to recover all those all those people waiting their opportunity. They made history but are not inside official history. And I would also like to say something about the cover, the beautiful cover of the book. Uh, some people wonder why I chose this image and where does it come from. And here is the explanation inside one of the stories of the book. West African sculptures have always sung while they worked and they do not stop singing until their sculptures are finished. That way the music gets inside the carvings and keeps on singing. In 1910, Leo Frobenius found ancient sculptures on the slave coast, sculptures so beautiful that made his eyes bulge. Their beauty was such that the German explorer believed they were Greek, brought from Athens or perhaps from the lost Atlantis. His colleagues agreed, Africa, daughter of a scorn, mother of a slaves, could not have produced such marvels. It did, though, those music-filled effigies had been sculpted a few centuries previous in the belly bottom of the world, Ife, the sacred place where the Yoruba gods gave birth to women and men. Africa turned out to be an, an unending wellspring of art, art worth celebrating and worth stealing. It seems Paul Gauguin, a rather absent-minded fellow, put his name on a couple of sculptures from the Congo. And the error was contagious. From then on, Picasso, Modigliani, Clay, Giacometti, Ernst Moore, and many other European artists made the same mistake and did so with alarming frequency. Pillaged by its colonial masters, Africa would never know how responsible it was for the most astonishing achievements in 20th century European art. And after the container, the contain, the contain, there is a, uh, some of the short stories at the beginning of the book, which perhaps may, may be a, a good introduction to all the others. 600 short stories. I, I'm, I'm not, don't be afraid, I'm not going to read 600 stories. <laughs> just, just choosing some of them. So, no, no, no panic, que no cunda el pánico, no. <laughs> no. 
How would the Trojan War have been told by an unknown soldier? A Greek food soldier ignored by the gods and desired only by the vultures that circled the battlefields. A farmer fighter hymned by no one, sculpted by no one, a nobody, and, and everybody, obliged to kill, and without the slightest interest in being killed to win Helen's eyes. Would that soldier predicted what Euripides later confirmed? that Helen never was in Troy, only her shadow, that ten years of butchery occurred for the sake of an empty tunic. And if that soldier survived, what would he recall? Who knows? Maybe the smell, the smell of pain, and only that. Three thousand years after the fall of Troy, war correspondents Robert Fisk and Fran Sevilla tell us that wars stink. They have been in several wars on the inside and they know the hot, sweet, sticky stench of decay that gets into your pores and takes up residence in your body. And to begin speaking about the a good part of the invisibles. thousands of millions of invisibles. There they are, painted on the walls and roofs of caves, bison, elk, birds, horses, eagles, women, men. These figures are ageless. They were born thousands and thousands of years ago, but, but they are born anew every time someone looks at them. How could he, our ancestor of long ago, paint so delicately? How could a, a brute who fought wild beasts with his bare hands create images so so filled with grace. How did he manage to draw those flying lines that break free of the stone and take to the air? How could he? How could he? Or was it he? I have read a lot of books about 
the so-called prehistorian prehistorian art, and I, I didn't find this this question. Never. Perhaps because women are just a minority. But I, I'm not strong in, in mathematics, but how can half of something be a minority? <laughs> Who knows? The symbols of the French Revolution are female. Women, women of marble or bronze with powerful naked breasts, Frisian caps, flags aflado. But what the revolution, the French Revolution produced was the declaration of the rights of man and the citizen. And when revolutionary militant Olympe de Gouges proposed a declaration of the rights of woman and the female citizen, she was hauled off to jail. A revolutionary tribunal found her guilty and the guillotine removed her head. At the foot of the scaffold, Olympe asked, if we women have the right to go to the guillotine, should we not also have the right to go to the tribune? Not allowed, not allowed. They could not speak, they could not vote. The convention, the Revolutionary Congress, closed down all women's political associations and forbade women from debating men as equals. Olympe de Gouges' companions were sent to the lunatic asylum and soon after her execution it was the turn of Manon Holland. Manon Holland was the wife of a, a minister of the government but not even that could save her she was found guilty, guilty of, quote, an antinatural tendency to political activism. <laughs> End of the quote. She had betrayed her feminine nature, which was to keep house and give birth to brave sons, and she had committed the deadly offense of sticking her nose into the masculine affairs of a state and the guillotine dropped once more. Some of the evil friends I have, a lot of them I have. I wonder if it's not better to have enemies than evil friends as I have. So as I included so many stories about the humiliation and discrimination of women all along history. All the commentaries were reduced to just one. My evil friends asking, and what about Condoleezza Rice? But, but nobody's perfect. <laughs>
are listening to part one of a reading by renowned author Eduardo Galeano as he reads from his book, Mirrors, Stories of Almost Everyone, published in 2009. It's open book, Friday's edition of Cover to Cover. Other disappeared, other invisibles. Thousands of unburied dead wander the Argentinian Pampa. They are the disappeared from the last military dictatorship. General Jorge Videla and his henchmen used disappearance as a weapon of war on a scale never before seen. He used it, but he did not invent it. A century beforehand, against Argentina's native peoples, General Julio Argentino Roca employed the same masterpiece of cruelty, which obliges each victim to die and die again and go on dying, while his loved ones lose their minds chasing his elusive shadow. In Argentina, as in all of the Americas, the Indians were the first disappeared. They disappeared even, even before they, they appeared. General Roca called his invasion of Indian lands the conquest of the desert. Patagonia was an empty space, a kingdom of nothing, inhabited by no one. After that, Indians continued disappearing. Those who surrendered and gave up their land and everything else were called Indios Reducidos, reduced to the point of disappearing and those who did not surrender and were defeated by gunfire and swords, sword blows, disappeared into numbers, becoming the nameless dead of military body counts. Official history has it that Vasco Núñez de Balboa was the first man to see two oceans at once, the two oceans at once. From a summit in Panama, Balboa was the first man to see both oceans. Were the natives blind? Who first gave names to corn and potatoes and tomatoes and chocolate and the mountains and rivers of America? Who? Hernán Cortés, Francisco Pizarro. Were the natives mute? The pilgrims on the Mayflower heard him. God said America was the promised land. Were the natives deaf? Later on, the grandchildren of those pilgrims of the north seized the name and everything else, and now they are the Americans. But those of us who live in the other Americas, 
Who are we? Who are we? Martians. ¿Qué mierda somos? <laughs> Adam and Eve were black. The human voyage in the world began in Africa. From there, our ancestors set out to conquer the planet. Many paths led them to many destinies, and some took care of handing out colors from the palette. Now the rainbow of the earth is more colorful than the rainbow of the sky. But we are all, we all are emigrants from Africa. Even the whitest of whites comes from Africa. Maybe we refuse to concede our common origin because racism causes uh, amnesia or because we find it unbelievable that in those days long past the entire world was our kingdom an immense map without borders and our legs were the only passport required At the height of a wave of lynchings, D.W. Griffith's film, The Birth of a Nation, sings a hymn of praise to the Ku Klux Klan. This is Hollywood's first blockbuster and the greatest box, officer, box office success ever for a silent movie. It is also the first film that ever opened at the White House. President Woodrow Wilson gives it a standing ovation. Applauding it, he applauds himself. Wilson, the famous flag bearer of freedom, wrote most of the texts that accompany the epic images. The president's words explain that the emancipation of the slaves was, quote, a veritable overthrow of civilization in the South, the white South under the heel of the black South, end of the quote. Ever since, chaos reigns because, because blacks are, quote, quote again, Men who knew none of the uses of authority, except its insolences. But President Wilson lights the lamp of hope, quote, At last there had sprang into existence a great Ku Klux Klan. 
Well, fortunately, the United States have now a quite, quite a different president. Eduardo Galeano reading from his book, Mirrors, Stories of Almost Everyone, published in 2009. He was visiting Oakland in the summer of 2009 as part of KPFA's series of literary events. Tune in next week for part two as we continue bringing you the reading of Mirrors, Stories of Almost Everyone by Eduardo Galeano. You can visit our website at kpfa.org to find out more about upcoming KPFA events. With Erica Birchman at the controls, I've been your host, Amelia Gonzalez. Thanks for listening. September 19, 2010, KPFA lost one of its most distinguished on-air personalities, Sir Doug of Edwards, host of Airtime, which aired Saturday nights at 11 p.m. A celebration of Doug Edwards is scheduled for Sunday, November 21, 2010, from 2 to 6 p.m. at Kimball's Carnival, 522 2nd Street, Oakland, California, located in the beautiful Jack London Square. There will be live music provided by Barry musicians such as Calvin Keyes, George Randolph, Professor Bill Bell, Nicholas Beard, the McKesmo Band, and others. You are invited to join us in this celebration of Doug Edwards' life. Please call 510-848-6767 for further information. Full Circle, Friday, November 19th at 7 p.m. to pay homage to your elders. We'll talk to elders from all walks of life. Hear them share their wisdom. Discuss their sexuality and how they get down. And listen to those who have led the path to social justice and stayed the course for future generations. Full Circle on Friday, November 19th at 7 p.m. to hear the wisdom of elders on 94.1 FM KPFA.